My head certainly is filled with things to say, so once again, thank you for joining us tonight and listening to me say them. I am, of course, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. You're tuned into Corbett Report Radio here on the Republic Broadcasting Network for this Tuesday night edition of the program. And, of course, I am coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan, where it is already Wednesday afternoon, so wherever you are, thank you once again for joining us. And tonight we have another interesting conversation lined up for you tonight. Uh, We're going to be talking about anarchy and property and some of the core political philosophy types of issues that we get into on a regular basis here on Corbett Report Radio and that I know a lot of you out there are interested in and thinking about, like myself, who has uh, been going down this road for a while now and took an awfully long time to come to the basic realization that we should just follow the basic rules that we learned uh, when we were children, that uh, we shouldn't steal, fight, or uh, coerce others into doing things they don't want to. Well, if that applies at our basic social relations, why wouldn't that apply with these funny men in hats and badges who claim to be working for that mythical beast called the the government, which uh, claims to have authority over our lives? Well, that's a good question and one that I couldn't find a good answer to that didn't involve getting rid of that mythical beast and the, um, the sway it has over our minds. And one of the people who has uh, been helping me in that quest to come to the idea of what a stateless society would be and how we can achieve it is Larkin Rose of LarkinRose.com. And I know he's a popular guest, so I'm glad to have him back on the program. Larkin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us tonight. Thanks for having me on again. Excellent. Well, I, uh, I mentioned LarkinRose.com. Is that the best way for people to get a hold of you? Do you have any Twitter or anything you'd like to throw out? Uh, for the moment, I sort of avoid Facebook because I think I'd never escape. Um, so, yeah, Larkin at LarkinRose.com is my email, and that goes right to me. And LarkinRose.com is the website. Excellent. All right. Well, well, I, I say political philosophy in the introduction here, talking about the idea of anarchy, of a stateless society, of voluntary relations between people instead of the big stick of government. But in a way, it, it's not even politics, I think, because at least in my mind, that entire idea has been tarred with the uh, the, the whole nature of the left-right political system and, and Obama and Romney and Obama and whatever you want to call them, the two-headed beast uh, that's just running things uh, up top. And in a way, I think that what we're talking about when we talk about a stateless society isn't politics at all. It's really more of a, a social relation. It's almost a moral philosophy, more so than a political one. But uh, what's your take on that? Yeah, and that's why right on my website I refer to it as the anti-political philosophy. Because it is, you know, the entire range that most people ever think about when it comes to politics is what should the big master do to us. And to say nothing, there shouldn't be a big master is completely outside of the paradigm. You're right. It, it ceases to be politics and becomes a gigantic lack of politics is we don't play that game at all. We, we You can't win that game. Well, unless you happen to be on the throne yourself, then you can win right. big and stomp on exactly. all the little people. But as and an actual, of course, I think that's how they get people to buy into the system on a deep subconscious level. The idea that you can either be in that position of power or you can somehow access that position of power by getting your your team, your guys on the right side and the winning side. And I right. think uh, so many people invest their their identity in that game. Right, right. That if they if they whine loud enough and if there are enough of them crying about it, they can get the big guy with the club to hit the people they don't like and take their stuff and, and turn it over to them. And of course, none of them will describe it that way, but that's you know, it, it's obvious that's what people want. When they go and vote, what they want is the big guy with the club enforcing their 
priorities and preferences and beliefs on everybody else. Why else would you vote? I mean, people know that government doesn't just make nice suggestions. It commands people and takes their stuff. And so if you're voting, you know you're voting for somebody who's going to boss people around and take their stuff, even though nobody likes to say it that bluntly. Well, there you go. The lesser of two evils is still always evil. And uh, we have to st get out of that paradigm where that's all we can think of to choose. So, uh, Larkin, another uh, great conversation, I'm sure, tonight. So I'm looking forward to it. Let's take a short breather, and we'll be right back with Larkin of LarkinRose.com right after these messages. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio, friends. You are tuned into Republic Broadcasting, and I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Tonight we're talking to Larkin Rose of LarkinRose.com, and I want to expand on our earlier conversation that we had here on the broadcast a few months ago, talking about anarchy and the stateless society. I'd like to talk with Larkin at some length about some of these ideas. And actually today I'd like to start expanding up the, the conversation into points of uh, not disagreement but perhaps points in which I still am wrestling with the, with some of my questions about what this really all means and how this can all be uh, decided or even achieved so uh, so Larkin I want to turn today to the question of private property because um, well correct me if I'm wrong but I would assume that we both share the idea that the fundamental moral and ethical precepts that our political philosophy so-called has to be based on is the idea that uh, that we cannot uh, violate the private property of others and of course that the non-aggression principle we can't use force to make people do what they don't want to do I, I take that to be the two sort of ethical bedrocks on which we rest all of this philosophy but w would you dispute that or would that would uh, go along with it? yeah I, I would agree except I'd, I'd actually simplify it even a step further and say that it's it all I think it can all pretty much be boiled down to I own me and you own you and almost everything else I say about Politics and government can be extrapolated from that. And private property is just an extension of that. If I own me and I put my time and effort into making something, it's mine. It's not yours unless I give it to you or unless we agree on trade. That's the basis of private property, and it's the reason the non-aggression principle is, is valid. Because if I own me and you come and punch me in the face or take what I made, that's bad because you're taking basically a piece of me. So it's all it's all part of the same very basic concept that that even you know little children understand this until they're taught to not understand it. Exactly right. Exactly right. I mean, I think it it is a question of confusion and deliberate confusion, and of course that's done not just by uh, the the big stick of government, by but but by the big carrot of government as well. This promise of manna from heaven and money from nothing, and if you just vote for the right people, they'll uh, parachute down the the right bundles of money into your lap out of nowhere. But of course that that isn't how reality works. Uh, property that's stolen from other people to be given to you is still stolen property, and it was uh, it was acquired by force. So. So I think a lot of people listening will probably understand taxation as force, will understand that principle, will understand uh, the principle of 
the the property ownership in in terms of um, if you go and cut down a tree and make a, a chair out of it, it is your chair because you made it and you put your time and effort into that. I think that's not such a uh, a revolutionary concept, and I, I imagine most of the audience would be willing to go along with that. But what I, I'm wondering about when we get to some of the uh, the, the more questionable areas. So, for example, uh, no one disputes, or I would hope no one would dispute the idea that I own myself, I own my body, you own your body. Now, obviously, we can't uh, inflict anything on on anyone else without their their permission. So, so there's that sort of basic delineation of of properties and spheres. But uh, but what about when we get into situations of, for example, the homesteading principle? The idea that if you if you take a, a patch of land, for example, and you clear it out and you you start to work the land, the fruits of that labor, which would translate into you know vegetables or whatever it is you're growing, would be yours, your property. Which again, I think is probably a pretty uncontroversial idea. But how far can we extend that idea? So, for example, I mean, in the in just in the simplest idea of taking a parcel of land and making it our own, I mean, is just sticking stakes in the ground over a you know a hundred thousand square kilometer area enough to claim it for your own? I mean, what is the fundamental principle involved in that property ownership? Well, that yeah, that is a point where it's it's difficult to draw. Uh, a distinct obvious line that that will cover all all situations you know if two people land on a tiny little island and there's like there's one tree there's going to be a problem if there's a, a scarcity of resources and maybe one person says well i want the tree to remain a tree because i like the shade and the other one says well i want to knock the tree down and make it into a shelter you know when the, before they got there the tree wasn't anybody's nobody even knew it existed and this is especially true of land that we sort of, you know, given the specific situation, we sort of have to figure out, uh, you know, a way to to determine what we're going to call each other's property. Now, a lot of people say, well, just have it be collective property, everybody's property. There isn't such thing and there can't be such thing. And use the example of the tree. It can't be a shade tree and a shelter. It's going to be one or the other. So one way or another, there has to be some way to decide, well, whose is it? You know, is it going to be a shade tree or is it going to be somebody's shelter? And if if we start out by saying, well, let's fight about it and whichever one of us lives wins, you know, that's that's not the rational, civilized way to do it. And this is obviously a, a, a set-up scenario that very much, you know, that limits the resources. In the real world, there is a lot of land and a lot of resources for every person. And a lot of people don't get that because if you go into a big city, it looks like, wow, there's people everywhere and a bunch of concrete and not much else. Uh, but if you, you know, drive across this country, you see, no, there's actually lots and lots and lots of stuff not being used. But it's still the, the, the exercise is useful to show that there, it is difficult to draw a line, especially when it comes to just land ownership. Like if I build a, a shelter in the woods somewhere to live in it and nobody was living there before nobody claimed it before and somebody else comes along and says i want to build a shelter an inch away from yours i say well i kind of like the woods around me and like the scenery and there's lots of empty woods over there why don't you move over a bit you know you can't you can't really draw a distinct line that says well i was here and i claimed seven hundred thousand acres of land as my own and nobody else is allowed to set foot on it um so it it, it in the specific example of land use, it does sort of come down to 
you know, being rational and coming up with compromises and deciding, you know, because there's a finite amount of it, deciding how people can coexist without having shootouts or fist fights, deciding what it is. But that doesn't actually change the, the, the concept of what I make is mine. Like I didn't make the land. I didn't make the tree, <laughs> but right. Right. When we come across and, and, it, and, uh, let me say I, I totally agree. I understand that just because there may be areas of dispute doesn't mean that we need any sort of outside force, some big stick, or the, uh, the uh, violation of the non-aggression principle in order to solve those problems. I would certainly hope that uh, as a species we'll be able to find some better way of, of con- uh, dispute resolution. But before we get into that, you raise such an important and interesting point about the nature of property by this definition, because. When we say, for example, that uh, if you you chop down the tree and you make a chair out of it, then it's your chair uh, that becomes your property. Well, by that definition of property, really the only things that can be property, as you point out, are things that that are worked on, that are are somehow transformed or somehow taken taken under the ownership of of someone who, of course, owns their own body and their own time and their own labor. But but that's, that's an interesting point because that means that, for example, a tree that is not someone's property can... Can can never be made into simply a tree. I mean, it, it is a tree, and we come along and we 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 make it into something else. But uh, but if there is someone who does believe that it should never be made into something else, there's no way that someone can assert the ownership over it to do that. In order to claim ownership, we have to to actually transform something or take something over. So that to me indicates that basically what we're saying is the earth is naturally and by its very nature just something that's waiting for us to to work on it and that there's nothing such as a, a an area that we that could be decided on as a place that could not be you know destroyed transformed whatever right although people can come to agreements like okay that's your yard and the tree that's there that was already there before there was a house there or anything we you know we both agree that's your tree and over on this side of the fence this is my stuff it can be a lawn, it can be a tree, it can be a, a rock, it can be whatever was already there. And we basically, we come up with ways to coexist peacefully. And uh, what I was going to add is, you know, obviously the what you'd hope for is to come up with a way that we agree, okay, you know, this is my stuff, that's your stuff, including the stuff we didn't do anything with yet. It's just sitting there, just sort of our, our territory. And so we'll respect each other's territory. And... Or we can do it the stupid violent way and duke it out and have a fight over it. The thing is, when people say, well, well that's what you need government for, what they feel to re- fail to realize is that government is starting by jumping to the second option and fighting over it with violence. Because government doesn't come up with compromises. It says, we make the decision, and if you disobey us, we club you over the head. So to think that bringing authority into the equation is going to make civilization happen is the exact opposite of the truth because it doesn't get, come in and say, "Come on, can't we all just get along?" It comes, it comes in and says, "Here is our decision. If you disobey, we crush you." So it's the it's the opposite of what rational, civilized people should do when there's any scarcity of resources. The last thing in the world they should do is say, "Let's fight to the death for it." But that's exactly what government is. As soon as you bring in an authority which is going to decide that. Instead of having people just behave rationally and saying, well, okay, how about I'll be over here and you be over there and we agree that you don't come and cut down these trees that are, I like them being trees over here. You know, you come to a a compromise and understanding instead of immediately resorting to the threats of violence, which is what government always is. 
Right. So, I mean, you're exactly right, of course. I mean, we have to come to, to some sort of uh, understanding through negotiation rather than through violence. So, so again, I don't disagree with that. It's just, um, it's interesting to me, and it implies certain things, I think, about um, what can or cannot potentially be made property, which uh, is a whole other uh, idea into itself. But before we get into that, we're coming up against another break. So, so why don't you tell us, what is your YouTube channel account again? Uh, it's just youtube.com slash Larkin Rose, which is L-A-R-K-E-N-R-O-S-E. Right. I, I strongly recommend people go there and check out some of your videos. I, I'm once again, I'm always impressed by your videos, always quite creative, quite funny, entertaining, but also engaging and, and get to some of these core issues. So I hope people will uh, check that out if they haven't already. Of course, I'll put the link in the show notes for this episode at CorbettReport.com slash radio. And with that, we are coming up against a break, but let's uh, let's come back and regroup our thoughts. If you want to get in on tonight's conversation, 1-800-313-9443. That's 1-800-313-9443, and we'll get you up and on the air. Let's take a short breather. We'll be right back with Larkin Rose. No matter how hard you try, you can't stop us now. No matter Welcome back, fellow renegades. You are tuned into Corbett Report Radio here tonight on this Tuesday night edition of the broadcast. Once again, I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and we're talking to Larkin Rose of LarkinRose.com. Before the break there, I was recommending people go check out YouTube.com slash LarkinRose for, uh, for some of his very, I think, insightful, very humorous, very entertaining videos that do a good job of explaining some of what we're talking about tonight, the idea Perhaps we don't need a big brother, big sister government telling us what to do and putting their hands in our pants, etc. At the, T- at the airports with the TSA and all of the uh, the silliness that's going on in the name of fatherland security in the U.S. of A. these days. And uh, I th- as I say, I think he does a good job of putting that in video form. So I hope you'll check some of those out. And on that note, Larkin, I note that uh, one of your recent videos called The Jones Plantation has gotten quite a few views online. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that video? It's basically a, it's an animated thing. I didn't do the, I wrote it, but I didn't do the narration or the animation. Um, and it's better because I didn't do it. Um, but it, it basically, it goes through the story of a, an old, you know, southern slave plantation and shows how if you use the right word, basically this guy's having trouble with his slaves, like being disobedient, trying to run away and another, plantation owner says, hey, I know someone who can help. So he brings in this guy who basically he convinces the slaves just by describing things differently that, no, you're really free and really you're in charge and really this is your plantation and this is, you know, you're empowered and you're not slaves anymore, even though nothing really changes. And it it goes through, it basically reflects the mythology that we're taught about government and you know just about every example that well they serve us and they represent us and because we can choose which of them is taking our money and clubbing us over the head that counts as us being free and uh, all the usual things and just shows that if you if you could convince slaves of the same lies you can keep them enslaved a whole lot longer and more easily if you can dupe them into thinking that they're free and the the funny thing is the video doesn't even it doesn't even bother pointing out the analogy because it's so obvious you know it just tells the story 
and everybody can see, yeah, that is what we're told. <laughs> you know, that's one of the interesting and perhaps frustrating things about talking about this is that so many of these things are obvious. And as I say, they go back to things that we learned when we were children, just basic ethical principles. But uh, but for some reason, as you say, we get taught how to forget all of that, basically, and and, and question ourselves and our own uh, basic understanding of, of the world. And somehow we get caught up in this political game. I mean, and the thing about uh, videos like the Jones Plantation is that it puts it in a way that everyone understands it and people respond so greatly to it. And yet still, I mean, on the bigger scheme of society, we don't see a lot of people coming to this conclusion these days. I mean, how, can you speak to that type of control that uh, the powers that be have over people's minds to convince them that the powers that be should even exist at all? Yeah, well, if you look at, First of all, about a lot of the videos I do are just about pointing out very simple, basic ideas and just sort of quickly demonstrating how they totally go against everything we're taught about authority and government and politics. So basically, I just poke little holes in people's belief systems. But the, yeah, the challenge is, is not to teach people something that's more complicated than what they've been taught. It's a thousand times simpler. You know, the concept of I own me and you own you, it's a thousand times simpler than the bizarre, convoluted, twisted mythology that tries to justify a ruling class of any kind, including in this country. The Constitution, and it's a democratic republic, and you vote for them, and they represent you while they steal your stuff and beat you up. And, and the, the complexity of the mythology that's pounded into people's heads for years and years and years makes it difficult for them to think about just painfully simple, obvious stuff. So it's not like, well, I have an even more complicated philosophy that's better. It's, I want to back people up to the basic things that everybody instinctively understands, but then they're trained to forget it. And they're, uh, the, my book, The Most Dangerous Superstition, goes into how they're trained to forget it, and a huge one is school you spend most of your formative years in a setting where there's obviously two classes of people. There's the teacher, authority, who bosses you around, tells you what to do, decides what you can think, what you can think about, what you can talk about, what you can do, where you can sit, you know, what you can possess, all of that stuff. And when you live in that setting year after year after year, you get trained to think that you're the subject class and that someone has to be in charge of you and you have to obey them. So you step out of school, and what do you do? You look around for, well, who's in charge now? And trying to teach somebody something as simple as you're in charge of yourself is really difficult because they've never been exposed to that ridiculously obvious self-evident idea that they own themselves and they're in charge of themselves. It becomes a foreign concept to them because they're trained to not understand Something that's so basic, it's almost silly to put it into words, to say that you own yourself. It's just, of course I do. <laughs> Who exactly. else would? Exactly. Well, you know, I think that's perhaps part of the way it functions. It is so basic, it is so obvious that people can't really bring themselves to believe that they've been deluded out of that for, for so many years, like myself even. It's taking so many years to really begin to question the fundamental assumptions about government and who these people are who claim to have this authority. So a lot to think about. At any rate, we will continue this discussion after the break. Once again, the phone lines are open, 1-800-313-9443. We'll take a short breather, and we have a nice, big, long segment coming up to continue talking with Larkin Rose, LarkinRose.com, right after this. Red tape to keep the truth confined. 
You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Welcome back to the broadcast, friends. James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we're talking about anarchy and property and other such interesting concepts with our guest, Larkin Rose. Once again, he's available at LarkinRose.com and YouTube.com slash LarkinRose, and of course I'll put those links in the show notes for tonight's episode at CorbettReport.com slash radio, and I'd just like to remind the radio listeners out there that these uh, radio shows are now also being made available as videos on CorbettReport.com, so you can go to CorbettReport.com slash videos shortly after this uh, this airs within the next few hours. Hopefully the, uh, the video will be up. So Larkin, returning to our conversation, talking about property, let's start to flesh out some of these concepts, because it appears to me, at least uh, at first glance, that... There are certain things that, by this definition of property, cannot be made into property, or at least would, we'd have a lot of trouble doing so. So, for example, if we're thinking about the homesteading principle and the idea that we mix our labor with something in order to make it into property, what does that say about, for example, a, a section of a river? Can we make a part of a river our, our property, or, or the air that we breathe? Is there, is there a way to make part of the atmosphere our property, or are these things... Uh, things that by their very nature cannot be made property because of the way that they, uh, they, they are not containable. Well, I, I think it's actually a little bit of both. Uh, like I was saying before, we can come to agreements where we, we say, you know, we, we understand, okay, on that side of the line, that's sort of your domain. You can build stuff there. You can have your house. You can, you know, build a dock on the river. You can do all that. Um, and, basically make up artificial lines, not what we built, not what we fabricated, but just, okay, here's here's my piece of dirt, there's yours, just because it works better than fighting over it. Because, you know, whenever there's, whenever something isn't claimed as property, that's when they'll use, there will usually be a problem. Because if nobody claims a piece of dirt or a piece of river and two people want to use it or build something or go fishing on it, then suddenly there's a conflict, and well, I want to be here. Well, I want to be here, and I was here first. And without that prearranged agreement that okay, that's that's yours and this is mine, it actually leads to more conflict than than making up artificial property boundaries. Right. But yeah, right. they and are artificial. Right. I agree certainly when it comes to the idea of land, but but perhaps you you see where I'm going with this when we talk about wa- water or air or things that cannot be contained. What we're doing if we for example make a section of river our property when 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 we have a piece of land, of course we can do anything we want with that land. We can do whatever we want to the the, the objects that are on the land and, and no one else really has a say over it if it's our property. But if we're doing something to, for example in a river, obviously the river keeps moving on and the person downstream gets whatever garbage or whatever it is that we're putting into the river. Same with the atmosphere, for example. Whatever we do in the air will transfer over to other people so that as unfortunately people are all too aware here in Japan with the Fukushima incident, I mean, something that happens locally can have worldwide effects uh, uh, overall. And uh, and that's where it starts to, to, I think, become a little bit more complicated in terms of is is someone's individual property really not, in a way that, that what they do does not affect other people? And if it does, then, then shouldn't other people have some sort of say over that? It does become more complicated, but in a way it becomes more important to have property boundaries. Because if I say, 
you know, here's, here's my property, here's my cabin, here's the stream that runs through it. And all of a sudden there's green, toxic, steaming mayhem flowing down my stream. If I, you know, if I, if it's understood that this is my property and you're making green, glowing waste run on my property, then I can say something about it. But if we say, well, it's sort of nobody's property, what's my complaint? Well, if it's nobody's property, then who am I to whine about the green mayhem flowing down the river, killing everything? Um, so in the, you know, when it, whether it comes to air or water, the whole, the whole pollution thing, if I'm sitting in my cabin and what's around me that, that we agreed was my pro- property gets messed up by something you're doing somewhere else, that's a property violation. And then it's actually justified to, to do something about it and say, hey, you're, you know, whether it's the water or you built a factory right next to me and I can't breathe in my own cabin, we have a bit of a problem. And if you, if you make anything collective, like, well, the air isn't really yours. Well, no, it isn't because it blows around, but this place is mine. And if you make it so I can't live in this place or so all my, all the trees by the stream are dying or whatever, that is a form of trespass and property destruction. Even though, you know, obviously the water flowing through and the air going through isn't mine. You put a big box around it and just stop it. That's, you know, that would be a bad plan. Um, but in a way, even though, yes, it makes it more complicated, it actually makes it more important to stick to, to property rights and say, because people, you know, the whole complaint about um, polluters and, well, we have to have government because people would pollute, it only matters if their pollution affects somebody else somewhere. You know, if they if they have their own little pond that has no outlets and they kill all the fish in it, oh well, I, you know, I can think that's stupid. But if it doesn't affect me, I have no reason to go there with a gun and say cut it out. Uh, but so in a way, property rights become more important to say I should be allowed to, you know, I should be able to sit in my own cabin and not suffocate or have everything on my property die because of what you dumped in the river, and. Again, to see that as, to see that as a, a reason for government to come along. Again, government is always force. It's always introducing force. Now, if somebody starts doing something upstream and is muddying the waters and some of the fish are dying, it would be nice if my first response wasn't to <laughs> grab a machine gun and start open firing, but go up and saying, um, have you noticed what you're doing to my stream? And, um, can we maybe come up with some arrangement where you're not messing up my stream, but you can still do what you do? You know, the civilized thing is figure out compromises and ways to, to coexist. Government is violence, so it should be the last resort. And unfortunately, it's what most people see as the, the first resort, especially when it comes to things like pollution, because it is complicated. Like, well, if it's one part in a gazillion that there's a little bit of smoke that every once in a while I can just barely smell... Is that a good enough reason for me to, you know, threaten violence against the guy on the other side of the hill? And when people resort to government, that's what it is. It's always resorting to, to threats of violence. It's go pass a law that says he's not allowed to do that. Exactly. Yeah. And lock him so up. So everything if he comes down to the point of the gun. Well, you're making an interesting point because I think you're exactly right. People are obviously more invested, both literally and, and, and figuratively, in 
a part of land or whatever if they actually own it. So if we say that it's just everyone's and it's collective, then then it becomes everyone's problem and it kind of disperses out into the crowd and we can look the other way. But if it's our land, we're going to be a lot more protective of it and, and whatever might be floating down the stream, as you say. So I think that's that's exactly right. But of course, it makes the entire prospect of dispute resolution much, much more complicated, because then we have to, uh, I mean, for example, if I, if I did believe your one part in a gazillion over the hill was actually affecting my air quality or whatever, I would, uh, I suppose, have to demonstrate that somehow. So I guess there'd have to be some sort of way that I could, you know, pull scientists out of uh, out of my hat and, you know, get them to demonstrate that what you're doing is, is harming me. And of course, you probably have your, your scientists who would have uh, different uh, conclusions and things like that. So, I mean, it, it raises the, the specter, which is one that I think a lot of people come back to. What does dispute resolution in a governmentless society look like? I mean, certainly we don't want the point of the gun and the government in the room always um, being the final arbiter. But given that we can't rely on that, what types of resolution mechanisms would de- develop in a stateless society, do you think? Well, that's the thing is is there are, you know, however many hundreds of different things that might happen. There's what might happen, there's what, like, what you and I might suggest should happen, but to start, people are so used to thinking in terms of a, a authoritarian master plan of here's what will happen, that they they want that. They want somebody to tell them, here is how this kind of dispute will be settled. And without a ruling class, we don't know. It depends on how rational the people are you know if you get two just stupid thugs arguing over you know whose banana tree it is it's probably going to be settled by violence just because they're too stupid to think of any other way to do it and the thing is with government it makes it always settled by violence because people are too stupid to do it now if it was you know if you and i had some dispute i suspect that we would think of you know a hundred different ways to try to do something about it before either of us would think of resorting to violence. And so it's the lack of a state doesn't magically make all conflict disappear, doesn't magically make all violence disappear, but it makes that the last resort for most people because most people don't want to start with violent conflict. They want to find other ways to deal with it. Whereas as soon as there's a government, they start with violent conflict. So it isn't at all a guarantee, and this is the uncertainty that people are scared of when they think of of no ruling class, because then the rationality is up to the people, and and people sort of have the attitude of, well, we're just dumb beasts, we would just kill each other if not for our wise masters coming along and saving us. And that mentality actually trains people to be stupid and irresponsible. Because it's never up to them to figure out what to do about, you know, well, I smell some of your factory exhaust. What can we do about it that we, you know, that both of us will be happy about? Right now, the solution is let's both run to government and see who wins the battle of government force. Well, that's not civilized and, and it doesn't at all guarantee a just outcome. But it's easy for irresponsible people who just want to run to the guy with the club. And so the the downside, if you want to call it that, of freedom is it works a whole lot better if people are responsible and rational. It sort of makes people be responsible and rational, unless they want to have a shootout about everything. And exactly right. Well, well, doesn't that mean that we have to put the cart before, or put the horse before the cart? And and shouldn't it be a question of of 
working on the rationality of people before this type of system could even really come into play? Well, no. Well, you know, what I try to do is work on the the, the rationality and and people's mindset because I don't think it matters what you know what the crooks in Washington do if we're all of the mindset of of you know if we have the mentality of slaves we're slaves if we understand freedom and want it Washington becomes irrelevant. The thing is, in the meantime, government doesn't help. It always resorts to violence. And, and look at the example of the concept of public property. You know, people say, well, it's for everybody. Okay, but if there are two people who want two different things to happen on the same piece of public property, it can't be everybody's anymore. You know, there's already, I mean, this is the essential problem with communism. Well, everybody owns this. Well, even if just two people own it, you know, two people own an egg salad sandwich. And I have an article about this. What's going to happen? They can't both eat it. There has to be some way to decide whose it is. And to call it public doesn't do anything to solve that. What it really means is it's the ruling class, so see who can whine to them first to do what they want. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the public property where, oh, this is everybody's, but you need to fill out this permit months in advance to, you know, get together with a few people on it. Well, wait a minute. I thought it was mine. I thought it was everybody's. No, it's the government's. There isn't such thing as communal property in the setting of a government. There's government property, and you can go beg to it to hopefully do with the property what you want done with it. But when you don't, when there are no lines and there is no ownership, that's when there's automatically conflict all over the place. I mean, just about everything that's public, consider public schools. There's just constantly arguments about what should be taught in them and what they should allow and don't allow this and and don't endorse that, and no, don't condemn this, and because everyone's forced to pay for this supposedly communal thing, and then they're forced to argue about it, <laughs> because this group doesn't yeah. want that taught, and this group wants that taught, and this group doesn't want them teaching sex education, and that one doesn't want them teaching evolution, and whatever. It, it is so ridiculous on its face, isn't it? I mean, the idea that people think that this actually helps things to just denote it communal, and then to squabble over what uh, what to do with it. It, it does uh, just seem to, to transfer things. And it, it's interesting to me, for example, when you think of, uh, of communism, or at least its roots in, in Marxism, um, isn't it interesting that, that Marx envisions this uh, stateless society as kind of the end product of, of this, uh, this historical process that he sees coming with, with communism? And, you know, the end is that this, the state will wither away. Of course, there's no detail on how that will happen or how the dictatorship of the proletariat will ever, will ever actually disappear it's just the state will wither away trust us right. or why or it, it seems, would it, yeah exactly it, it seems more more important to put that as the beginning of the political philosophy rather than some imaginary utopian end that will never actually arrive right right and that's really you know that's really the thing about statism is getting rid of it you know it's uh, in one way it's sort of weird that i call myself an anarchist because it's describing my philosophy by one thing i don't believe in like, I'm a non-Santa Claus believerist. Well, what does that say about anything else that I believe or want or, or anything else? It's just one negative. Doing away with statism doesn't fix everything. It just fixes the biggest problem in the world, which is people believing that if you use violence against your neighbor by way of this beast called government, then it's perfectly fine. It doesn't fix everything after that. It just fixes that gigantic, huge, violent, horribly oppressive problem. And then we're just left as human beings who have to figure out how to coexist on a planet without having shootouts and stuff. 
So it isn't, the thing is what people want a system for is to save them from having to be responsible and think for themselves. And that's why they don't like the concept of, of voluntarism or anarchism, because anarchism, you're in charge, you're at the top. You aren't anybody's slave, you aren't anybody's master, you're just one of a whole lot of human beings on the planet who have to figure out for yourself what you should do and how you can coexist with other people. Right, and, and, and when you describe that system, you talk, for example, of the situation of two stupid thugs arguing over a banana tree, well, they're probably going to resort to violence. Or we could imagine two rational people, well, they may be able to have some sort of rational agreement uh, what to do with the tree, but uh, but what about the case with one rational person and one big, dumb thug? I mean, it sounds like a, a thug's paradise in such a situation, because obviously the thug is going to be happy to resort to violence, and assuming that the uh, calm, rational person is not as uh, physically strong, they're probably going to get beaten up. I mean, it, it sounds like one of those situations where it, it is the law of the jungle, therefore uh, we'll see the exact type of ruling class come into power that, uh, that has always existed. And, and I know that's not really an argument for that to exist. Uh, it's not saying that the worst thing that can happen if we go to anarchism is that government will develop. I mean, well, that shows that government is the problem. But, but still, I mean, there's, there's that point that people continue to go back to when we think of this type of, uh, you know, this this stateless society. Right, right. And first of all, I'd say introducing government just makes sure that the stupid thug is really big and has a really big club. It, it doesn't make rationality win. It just makes the thug huge. He's um, really stupid, by the way. Really stupid <laughs> and really big, and nobody can resist it, and he squashes you. Um, but yeah, what what you describe is, you know, the the unfortunate reality is if the good people aren't able and willing to resort to the use of violence to defend themselves, they're in deep trouble. Now, when they're dealing with each other, they don't have to, but they need that ability for the thugs and statists who want to aggress against them. Very interesting. All right, well, let's take our final break, and we'll come back to finish things up with tonight's conversation, Larkin Rose. Once again, please go to LarkinRose.com for more of his writing, thoughts, philosophy, and videos, and we'll be back right after this. Why government? Why government at all? That is the question we've been thinking about tonight with our guest Larkin Rose of LarkinRose.com. So, Larkin, just in the final few minutes that we have here, I would like to give you a chance to talk about the events that I know that you're going to be attending in the next few weeks and some of your uh, books and other products that you sell at LarkinRose.com. But before we do that, we've covered a lot of ground tonight. Any final words you'd like to leave the listeners out there with who might be thinking about some of these topics for the first time? Well, it, it really comes down to, uh, this actually ties into the, the, the thing about the an event I'm doing soon. It really ties into being consistent with your own values and your own beliefs. And that's the thing about statism, is it tricks everybody into betraying their own priorities and their own values and their own virtues and their own goodness. Everybody who believes in government, everybody who plays the game, left, right, moderate, I don't care, is betraying what they believe in and what they want the world to be. Almost nobody sees it as that. But I would say, you know, if you don't feel right stealing my money for something you think is a good idea, don't vote for somebody else to do it. If you don't think you have the right to, to send thugs in to tell me what I can drink or smoke or whatever, don't vote for somebody else to do it. As it happens, I don't drink or smoke anything. But if you don't think you have the right to, to forcibly control your neighbor, why do you think it's okay to go to, to people in big buildings who have big 
big titles and big important sounding names paychecks. and have yeah. big paychecks and ask them to butt into everybody's life. If you want to be left alone, if you want to be left in freedom, you have to do that for other people. I mean, golden rule. <laughs> do unto others as you would have done unto you. And most people just, they, they've never thought about government in that context or they'd realize you cannot be moral and advocate government. The two just don't match. They don't ever match. And that's, yeah. as and it that happens... Might be, that might be part of the reason we saw the Republican primaries uh, crowd booing uh, Ron Paul when he managed to talk about the golden rule in the context of not attacking other countries uh, when they right. had attacked us. I mean, he actually got booed for it. So unfortunately, we are at a, a pretty sad state when it comes to uh, people's thinking on these issues and ability to apply basic moral reasoning to to the idea of politics. Yeah, but again, we just have a minute or two left, so let's talk about those events and, and some of the ways that people can help support your work. Yeah, I'm starting a, a, a thing called uh, Escaping the Myth. It's an interactive, uh, I call it a seminar, just because I don't know what else to call it, but it isn't just lectures. It's an interactive process. Uh, you can learn about this on LarkinRose.com. It's a two-day thing. The first one will be happening up in Troy, Michigan. Basically, instead of beating people over the head with, here's what you should believe, it walks people through. It starts with their moral code, their values, what they want, and basically slowly walks through the process of showing them that what they really believe in and what they want humanity to be is incompatible with political action. It's incompatible with the state. It's incompatible with government. And almost nobody sees that originally, but just through questioning, without me ever having to say what I believe or trying to bash them over the head with my, you know, what I want to see happen... I can show anybody that they always have internal conflicts inside their own head as long as they believe in government. And being able to show that to them that, you know, not you're bad and I'm good, do what I want, but you're good, follow your goodness, not your indoctrination, not the superstitions you've been taught. Look through them and make sure you're being consistent with yourself. All right. Well, on that note, uh, people who are interested in your seminar, how can they uh, get tickets? Uh, right now, it's on the front page of LarkinRose.com. Um, you can learn more about it and purchase tickets there. First one's up in Troy, Michigan, uh, later this month. Excellent. All right. Well, I hope people will check that out. Once again, LarkinRose.com, that's where you can go for the books, the uh, the seminar tickets, the, the donation, also uh, YouTube, uh, Facebook, whatever you need. You can find it there. So, LarkinRose, thank you again for your time tonight. Thank you. And that's it for tonight, folks. Once again, I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. We will be back in 23 hours' time. So until then, thank you all for listening, and take care.